The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. If you need to criticize somebody, don't criticize the players. Don't put pressure on the players. Don't put pressure on the coaches. Let them concentrate on football. Let them concentrate on making their fans happy. You want to criticize someone, come to me. Criticize me, here I am. You can crucify me. I'm here for that. That was FIFA president Gianni Infantino speaking last month, asking for the mountain of criticism surrounding Qatar's hosting of the World Cup to be directed at him. The tournament and its implications for the Gulf region are the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. The World Cup final is just days away. The winning football team can enjoy a raucous celebration, but there could be more than just one winner. The lead-up to the event in Qatar was mired with controversy around human rights abuses, concerned about the treatment of the LGBTQ community, and questions about how Qatar actually came to host the event. But with the focus turning mainly to football, can the experiment be deemed a success? And has it helped ease tensions in the region? Stay tuned as I speak to Breaking Views EMEA editor George Hay, our financial and football expert Liam Proud, and our Asia editor, Una Galani. It's the final week of the World Cup in Qatar, a controversial destination for such a massive tournament. And I'm here with George Hay, who has been covering the Gulf for us for quite some time, Liam Proud, who is a football enthusiast and also our financials expert, uh, and Una Galani, who actually has lived in the area. So I thought this would make a lively discussion. George, we'll start with you. I'm just kind of curious, this whole region and the fact that Qatar got the World Cup, can you talk us through why it has been so controversial? They won their bid back in 2010, and there was, at the time and ever since, suggestions about uh, the means in which they got that, suggestions of uh, corruption in the bidding process. And in the immediate run-up, all the way up to when the tournament started um, a month ago, there were also concerns about the human rights of the workers who were in, involved in building the stadiums. And also a lot of Western media were concerned about Qatar's attitude to human rights. There was a bit of a kind of clash and kind of running up to the actual start of the tournament. It was all getting rather awkward. And then what tends to happen and kind of what happened four years ago with Russia kind of happened here which is that the football starts and then a lot of the attention gets <laughs> inevitably goes on to that I wouldn't say the attention has entirely and decisively shifted away from those kind of human rights issues but it's you know I think Qatar has a lot of the focus over the last month has been unsurprisingly on the actual football but I suppose the kind of wider point really is just what does kind of Qatar get out of this and, and why did it why was it interested in doing this in the first place and um, at the end of last year, uh, when we were doing, looking forward to this year and thinking about what was going to happen, I wrote a piece saying that it was going to be really good for the region's economies, i.e. not just Qatar's economy, also good for UAE's and the surrounding. And I specifically wrote it like that because I wasn't completely sure that it was going to be amazing for regional harmony. And the reason I wasn't sure about that was that 
Qatar between 2017 and 2021 was being literally blockaded by its immediate, immediate neighbours, so Saudi Arabia, UAE, and a couple of others. And so they were really, you know, not friendly to each other. So the logic of the piece at the end of last year was to say Qatar is not a particularly massive place. They're not going to have enough space for everyone who wants to go to the to the World Cup to to kind of um, you know to to accommodate them. And so they'd have to kind of base themselves in Dubai or Abu Dhabi and fly over for the matches, which is exactly what's happened. But the surprising thing that's happened on top of that, which is really quite interesting, is that there has actually been regional harmony, a kind of outbreak of bonhomie. So Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi Crown Prince, attended an event wearing a Qatari scarf, while the Emir of Qatar was seen waving a Saudi flag. You also had kind of, you know, the heads of Egypt and Turkey attending the event and shaking hands, which is a kind of really quite seismic thing in the Middle East. And so you've had this rather kind of surprising and positive outbreak of regional harmony. Now, I think you can be sceptical about uh, nothing in the Middle East ever seems to stay, you know, friendly and simple for that long. You say you can be sceptical about how that long, long that lasts. But, you know, there, there's been a step forward for Qatar and the region from that perspective. Oh, interesting. And Liam, I might just switch over to you, the actual football itself, because obviously, as, as George said, that's what people wanted to focus on. This is, you know, a tournament that only comes around every four years. Has there been any upsets, surprises? I mean, has it been a very lively tournament versus everything else you've seen? Yeah, I think it's been pretty lively. You saw some quite early upsets. For example, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Argentina were one of the favourites coming into the tournament. You Petro saw... Dollars beating pesos. Petrodollars beating pesos, exactly. You saw um, Japan get out of the group ahead of Germany. We've seen Spain knocked out, Portugal knocked out, both by Morocco. So, yeah, I think it has been lively. I mean, there are probably kind of a bunch of different reasons for that, kind of sporting reasons. It's it's quite an unusual time of year to have a World Cup. Um, You usually have this sort of long kind of sort of summer in which the World Cup is basically you know it's a break where you're not playing football for a few weeks before before the teams go off and they have some time to kind of settle the squads together before they play the games in the summer that's not happened this year because of Qatar's climate that just would have been impossible so it's a bit more of an abrupt switch and I think maybe you could argue that that feeds into some of the upsets but yeah I'd say that the football's been pretty lively overall. And obviously Qatar own Paris uh, Saint-Germain does this do you think that what we've seen from Qatar in this World Cup does it make it more likely or does it stay the same in terms of what their financial interest might be in football clubs around the world kind of following this tournament? Because, I mean, this obviously it usually ends up having a, a massive impact on football support in the area that it, the, the tournament is hosted. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, George sort of touched on a lot of these points, but I think the weird thing about, you know, Qatar hosting the World Cup is that FIFA has traditionally wanted to put the World Cup in places with big populations that um, it can sort of turn on to football. I mean, Qatar does not have a big population, right? It's tiny. There's kind of barely anyone there. So in terms of like developing the domestic sport, I don't know, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a weird one. And so, it, I mean, does it make them more of a kind of international football powerhouse? I have to say, I'm, I'm really sceptical that they get a huge amount of value from any of these kind of sort of, you know, sports kind of, some people call it sports washing, where you try and kind of launder your your reputation by owning brands that people love and hold dear to their hearts. I, I don't know what George and Una think, but I sort of 
suspect that that overall it's a net negative. I don't think we would have been sitting around for the past year and a half talking about Qatar's human rights abuse if they hadn't decided to kind of shine a light on themselves by hosting this thing. And, you know, we know that economically hosting big things like the Olympics and the World Cup, you know, it's kind of a deadweight loss. You never make as much revenue as you spend on these things. And I think that's probably going to be particularly the case in Qatar. So, I mean, does it make them more financial powerhouse in the sporting world? I don't know, but I don't think it's been a successful move from my perspective. I'd, I'd like to know what everyone else thinks. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to jump in. I mean, I think that it has probably been a, re- a big success for them. I mean, I think, you know, what do golf monarchies really care most about? They care about saving face and, and financial prudence and sort of wastage are often secondary concerns. I mean, I think if you just step back and you look at the really very big picture, this is a tiny country with a population of only three million people. It secured this mandate to host this amazingly global competition. And there's been a lot of attention about the human rights, but the focus has really switched to the competition and to the sport. And so far, so good. We're sort of uh, we're sort of in the sort of final throes of the tournament. But, you know, there hasn't been a big stampede. There hasn't been a crush. There hasn't been as much uh, sort of uh, bad news coverage from the competition itself. It may be because they've had some very, very strict laws and rules about how foreign media uh, attending competition can cover the tournament. But I think, you know, this is shaping up to be a big success for them. I mean, you also think this is one of the richest countries in the world. It has the biggest GDP per capita. I think it's like $61,000. And at some points in this this journey, you've been tempted to think, you know, well, there's a limit to what money can buy, right? So you can't, you can't wish away these uh, stories about the wanting on the sort of human rights front, the approach to LG. TQ. And, you know, like you can have a lot of money, but FIFA, FIFA officials can arrive and your accommodation still isn't ready on time. And those are all embarrassments and problems. But at the end of the day, that's all kind of like washed away a bit now. And I think if we were worried about those things, there's definite a sense that this has been a success for them. And, and while they are not the biggest sort of future sporting market in the world, you know, let's not forget they have one of the biggest international flag carriers in terms of through Qatar Airways, right? This is Qatar as a sort of economy uh, beyond obviously the oil and gas and stuff. There's a sort of large part that is focused on being a connector of nations. You know, I think the Gulf region as a whole is sort of within four hours of, you know, pretty much, I mean, like strategically, it's one of the best geographic places to be able to connect lots of different populations. So I think like Qatar is is, is a funny one because I think it really resonates as a place with many Asians, you know, they know the airline, they sort of long for this sort of life where, like you can have in Qatar, where everything is dead, clean, lots of things are efficient, you know, it's just a slightly easier life than living in this sort of like big chaotic emerging market. So I don't know, I mean, I think if I'm uh, the Qataris today, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, this has actually not been, this has not been so bad. And we have had some upsets, right? Don't forget, there was the, somebody might have to jump in and remind me of the details, but you know, we had the ban on drinking around the stadiums just like go into effect just a few hours before the tournament kicked off and that was a bit of a sort of brutal blow to some of the sponsors I think Budweiser was involved there that that was I mean I I agree I agree you know that was probably that was the moment of kind of maximum like oh is this actually not going to be a success because as you say there was 
uh, around that time there was also concerns about you know whether there were going to be like stampedes or whatever at, at the uh, stadiums and whether there were going to be crushes and things like that and touch wood none of that has happened and um actually kind of operationally again touch wood nothing nothing has gone wrong and i think that's inevitably uh, offset you know some of the some of the kind of bad vibes at the start but i, I kind of agree i think it you know has a really interesting perspective there um and i think the, the the kind of you know in terms of it's interesting and instructive to think about what does qatar want generally and you know as you was saying it's got a lot of money but money can't buy everything and money can't especially buy security and if you're qatar especially after the blockade they went through and the general bad vibes in the region towards them you know one thing that you're really keen to do on an ongoing basis is to kind of raise your profile internationally beyond the gulf so you have a huge american military base in qatar which acts as a kind of protecting shield for them uh, to a certain extent but what they generally try to do is raise their profile by buying very high profile stuff. So they own lots of kind of flashy hotels in London. They own PSG, as we were talking about. But they try to deploy their capital in ways that are often that are quite eye-catching. And the other thing they try to do is to, as you know, was also kind of alluding to, is just insert themselves as a kind of mediator in regional and even non-regional issues. And so a kind of good a good example of that was last year with the evacuation of people from Afghanistan. A lot of that went through Qatar and they kind of were kind of quite integral to the process. So generally what they try to do is insert themselves in so that they are visible to the powerful countries of the world, both through their money and through what they do. And you, you, so you'd have to say that the real question is, does the World Cup, has the World Cup, you know, what has the World Cup done for that general strategy? And to Liam's point, I think, you know, there's a negative clearly in that it's made a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have focused or known about the human rights issues. They know more about that and that's negative. But I think in terms of the fact that they've just the reality that they touch would have st staged this basically successful event, which hasn't happened in this region before, you'd have to say that's um, a kind of positive and it kind of helps their general strategy. So that's probably the way I'd look at it. I mean, I, I, one thing I suppose maybe to end on this, Liam, I'm just sort of curious, if you're FIFA, does the sort of what George is alluding to and, and Una about the sort of success of this, that sort of the the controversy at the beginning that it was a, is a successful tournament and that everyone focused on the football, as you would expect, and um, that sort of did football wash or whatever you want to call it. Do you think FIFA would be more likely to hand the World Cup then to a country like Qatar in the future? Does that does it make that more likely? I think I think that's a really good question. And I think, I mean, we just we, we raised the question of sponsorships earlier on. And I think that's really kind of key to unlock kind of understanding how FIFA would think about this going forwards. You I mean you have, you have people like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, kind of huge global consumer brands who essentially pay a lot of money to be associated with the World Cup and that kind of gets funneled you know sort of through through FIFA back kind of into the world of football. I would have thought that given everything that we've seen from brand boycotts you know on social media sort of you know briefly not wanting to be associated with Twitter I would have thought we would have seen more of a kind of 
backlash against this but we haven't really you haven't you haven't seen any big brands you know even even Budweiser who had that kind of last minute scare yeah. where suddenly they weren't able to, to sell stuff locally they didn't it as far as I can tell they didn't really do anything about it so if you're FIFA and you've dealt with a you know a lot of this flack for years and years about hosting the the tournament in such a kind of illogical place and as George alluded to a lot of the kind of questions around the process behind that these people you know it's it's basically it's a bunch of men in switzerland who don't really care what the rest of the world thinks and it's quite an arrogant organization what would kind of break through that bubble that fifa bubble would be if sponsors were putting money and i don't i don't i can't see any evidence that they have they have been putting money i would also just point out that you know if you're like say i mean let's just take budweiser for example but like you know if you're a company today with a big global brand and you're looking for growth growth is in asia and in Asia, like sensibilities, sensitivities, uh, culture, it's very different. You know, what consumers might be sensitive in one place uh, and not they're not sensitive to it in another place. And, you know, so I think that like actually even the, the beer ban for Budweiser, you know, that can cut both ways. A lot of people can find that, you know, in, in many stadiums, in sporting tournaments in Asia, you know, alcohol is not really allowed in the stadium. It's not that rare. So it's a very like the sort of I mean, I think for companies as well who are involved in this, they have to think about their sort of global market as well now. Right. It's not just uh, it's not just sort of from a Western narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the dynamic, what we were just talking about there. I mean, the answer to your question, Amy, is possibly it will embolden FIFA to to kind of put World Cup in places that hasn't been before. Three million people, Ireland could host it next. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> that's what will happen. But um, wait, home over. <laughs> we need more money, more oil money. Okay, great. Well, listen, very interesting. Uh, as I said, the finals coming up, so lots to look forward to. Thanks so much, Una, Liam, and George. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb in Toronto and Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.